Hey, Mike, I got a question for you. What's up, Sean? Do we have a website? Not only do we have a website, we're getting a new website as well. A new website? Oh, my gosh. You can find our show now at texaspodcast.fm. .fm, just like your grandpa's old radio. So here's the plan, folks. We've got a new site, texaspodcast.fm. We're going to be going live soon. You'll find the site, new look, new feel, all the same great podcasts. You don't need to update your feed. You don't need to change anything right now. But uh, just check it out. Hey, look, it's the Star Wars kid. He's like, my name's Derek, and I have a law degree. (laughs) (laughs) Howdy, you're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State share views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zolkowski. I'm Sean McIver. And I'm Scott Elfstrom. His name would go on to become synonymous with being stubbornly independent, but Samuel Maverick was one of the unsung legends in the early history of the Lone Star State. This week, we look at the original Maverick. But first, what's your favorite Texas blues song? Well, I'm going to go with Going Down by Freddie King. Uh, Freddie King was one of the famed three kings of the blues, along with B.B. and Albert. He was actually from Gilmer, Texas, and he died in 1976. And this is a blues rock standard, uh, big-time jam song that pretty much everybody covered. But King's version, man, it is super electric. you gotta you got to go check it out and find it somewhere. It's on a uh, the Texas Music Post-War Blues Combos CD that I bought several years ago. So it's great, great stuff. Well, I'm not sure I could pick a favorite blues song, but uh, if I did, it would probably be something by Lyle Lovett. Um, A lot of his music uh, is infused with the blues. It doesn't fit neatly into any particular genre, but uh, I do enjoy his bluesy songs. Oh, what would you do as a blues song? Trust me. Well, yeah, like I said, they... He does blues, he does country, he does country blues, he does uh, does a lot of stuff. Hmm. Hmm. Are we wrong, Mike? Hmm. I'm just going to say, like, I think we could have tried harder on that one. <laughs> I'm going to throw out a more modern version, and I'm going to refer our listeners to go back to listen to episode 75 with Stevie Ray Vaughan and Texas Flood. Not only because of the massive floods that just happened in Texas, but also because it's a fantastic album. And I think he represents uh, modern Texas blues very, very well. It was only 30 years ago. Okay, so it's not modern anymore. (laughs) Yeah. Classic Texas blues. It is classic Texas blues. It It is a true classic. Nobody gets out of this podcast without singing the blues, Sean. (laughs) <laughs> that is Texas's own Albert Collins. That's my other favorite Texas blues song. Although it's set in Chicago. Chicago. Gross. In October of 1837, Samuel Augustus Maverick, his wife Marianne, and their first child, Sam Jr., as well as seven slaves, departed South Carolina for Texas. Maverick was the product of a prosperous planting family and had been a lawyer, planter, and had speculated in land prior to attempting to attain a large land grant in Texas. The Texas Revolution forestalled those plans, but Maverick had played a critical, if brief, role in the Siege of Behar, as well as the establishment of Texas independence and early government. He intended to return to Texas 
to once again to attempt to further his fortune. The Mavericks stopped briefly in Tuscaloosa as they traveled overland to the Republic of Texas. Mary's brother Robert and his three slaves joined them. They reached Texas around New Year's Day, 1838, and arrived at the home of a friend, George Sutherland, in Jackson County, which is on the Gulf Coast, on February 4th. Most of the party remained behind as boarders at Sutherland's house for the next four months. That's a long time to stay with a friend. Um, But Samuel went to San Antonio and started buying headright certificates with the money he got from selling his land in Alabama. Now, a headright was a legal grant of land to settlers. The Republic of Texas had committed to granting veterans of the Revolution a league and a labor of land, which was around 177 acres. Other programs granted new citizens various amounts of land. As many Texans at the time were cash-strapped, especially those who already had earlier grants of land that had been invalidated, it was a common practice to sell their headrights to those with cold, hard cash. Maverick received his own headright on March 2nd after four citizens testified that he had participated in the Texas Revolution. Maverick's family joined him in San Antonio on June 15, 1838, and they rented rooms in the same house as another of Mary's brothers, William. They purchased their own home on the San Antonio River in early 1839, and another son, Louis Antonio Maverick, was born in March. Meanwhile, Maverick had turned back to lawyering, receiving his Texas bar license in November of 1838. In January of 1839, he was elected mayor of San Antonio. After his term as mayor, he served as city treasurer and then served on the city council. He was also precinct justice of the peace during this time. Maverick also continued the Maverick family business, and indeed the business of pretty much any upper-class southerner of the time, of land speculation. By the end of 1839, he had purchased 41 lots, assuming that he'd be able to sell them off at a profit to the flood of new settlers. Unfortunately, this mass of buyers did not appear as immigration slowed after 1838. Nevertheless, by the end of 1840, he owned full title to 4,605 acres and had another 12,942 acres under survey. For the next, so this basically means it's on paper he owns that land that hasn't been surveyed yet. For the next several years, he spent a great deal of time away from home, either surveying frontier lands or traveling to New Orleans on business. At one point, Maverick narrowly avoided death while on one of these surveying trips. Because he promised his wife that he'd be home on a specific day, he left his surveying camp early in the morning. Later in the day, the Comanches raided it and killed all but one person who was there, and that person was scalped. As we know from our Great Raid episode way back in number 13, Comanche raids were a major threat all over Texas during this time. San Antonio wasn't an exception. Never one to sit on the sidelines, Maverick joined the local militia. When an attack happened, the church bell would ring and the militia would be ready to leave within 15 minutes. They would then set out after the raiders to try and recover captives and goods. On March 19, 1840, Sam was part of the Council House fight in San Antonio, a controversial incident where Texas Rangers and troops killed a number of Comanche chiefs when they were unable to make an agreement to return captives held by other bands. Mary's later account of the action in The One Captive Returned, who she cared for, is an important source for this incident, though primary sources contradict some of her statements. Only two days later, Maverick left his family in the care of his wife's two brothers while he went to New Orleans. 
While he was away, he collected rent money on his properties and sold more land in Alabama and South Carolina. He used the proceeds to buy two years' worth of provisions and had them shipped to the port of Linville. He was going to join the supplies there and escort them to San Antonio himself. As we learned back in episode 13, before Maverick arrived in Linville, the Comanche and Kiowa, led by Buffalo Hump, launched a massive raid in retaliation to the Council House fight from their bases in Comancheria all the way to the sea. Linville, as well as Austin and Victoria, were attacked, and all of Maverick's goods were destroyed or looted. In February 1842, news reached Texas that Santa Ana was again sending troops to reclaim the Republic. Mexico still considered Texas a rebellious state. The Mavericks joined a group of Texans who fled San Antonio in what would come to be known as the Runaway Scrape of 42. We stopped briefly in Seguin and then moved on to Gonzales, where they squatted in a house that had been left empty by others who had already fled. Leaving his family in safety, Maverick joined Texan Army troops in retaking San Antonio. The Mexican troops really retreated without much of a fight, but they did extensive damage to the Texan homes on their way out. Maverick's family remained in Gonzales for a time, but moved to LaGrange after several more Indian scares. On April 30th, he went to Alabama to retrieve his wife's sister, who had been living alone since her mother had died the year before. He returned to Texas in July. In August, he left yet again to argue a case in San Antonio before the district court. This ended up being bad timing for Maverick because in early September, the town was once again surrounded by Mexican troops under the command of General Adrian Wall. The 60 Anglos in town gathered in Maverick's home, but soon had to surrender to the Mexican army. They were forced to march to Mexico with a guard of 150 Mexican soldiers on September 15th. Two different bands of Texans made attempts to rescue them, but both failed. The second group, which included Mary Maverick's uncle John Bradley, was actually captured by the Mexican troops and forced to join the march to Mexico as additional prisoners. The group marched for three months before arriving at San Carlos Fortress in Perote, Veracruz. As might be expected, the journey was not an easy one and the prisoners were often forced to sleep in sheep pens, but Maverick was not entirely downtrodden by his captivity. He wrote in his journal that he, quote, saw and experienced a thousand new thrills. Uh, and Veracruz is literally almost to the Yucatan, almost to Cancun. So they marched from San Antonio all the way to the coast of southern Mexico. That's a long march. Cabeza de Vaca would say, eh, eh, <laughs> you're not naked. <laughs> yeah, he'd say he tried doing that without any clothes. Well, on the fifth day after their arrival, the men were chained together in pairs, and several days later, they were put to hard labor. The prisoners were provided hardly any food, and when Maverick complained on behalf of the men, his jailers put him into solitary confinement. In what must have been the ultimate insult to his opponents, while he was in prison, and despite the fact that his family actually did live in a different county, the people of San Antonio elected him as their representative to the Texas Congress. Now, for obvious reasons, he didn't attend the legislative session. Maverick actually could have been part of the legislative session since he was offered his freedom several times. All he had to do in return was publicly support Mexico's claim to Texas. His response was predictable. Quote, I cannot persuade myself that such an annexation on any terms would be advantageous to Texas, and I therefore cannot say so, for I regard a lie as a crime, and one which I cannot commit even to secure my release. 
Mavic was released by the Mexican government on March 30th, and his wife gave birth to his daughter, Augusta, that same day, though he wouldn't know that coincidence for some time. It took over a month for Sam to get home, and he finally arrived on May 4th, carrying the chain with which he had been bound. Maverick wasn't one to rest for long, though. By June, he returned to San Antonio to resume business. He was re-elected to the Texas House of Representatives, even though he hadn't attended the previous session. During this stint in office, he and his colleagues moved to Washington on the Brazos, rather than meeting at the state capitol in Austin, which was under threat of raids from both Native American tribes and the Mexican army. Maverick clashed with President Sam Houston a few times while they were both in office. He helped pass a bill over the president's veto, which repealed the president's ability to approve colonization grants. He added a clause specifying that any previously granted contracts would be forfeited if their terms were not met. He also did help certify bills by the president as part of the Enrolled Bills Committee. He was part of the Finance, Public Lands, Indian Affairs, and Foreign Relations Committee, the last of which castigated Houston for not providing information to Congress on his negotiations with the United States to annex Texas, even though Maverick himself was a strong advocate of annexation. In November of 1844, the Maverick family sold their land along the Colorado River and moved to Decrose Point on Matagorda Bay. Mary and their children had been ill often at their old home, and no doubt remembering the vice of his father once again about living a healthy life, they moved to be in a better climate. The move worked, and they were healthier for the three years that they lived there. In 1844, Sam now owned a whopping 35,299 acres by title in Bear County and Bear Territory, which is now what we would call the Panhandle counties in most of West Texas today. An additional 20,000 acres were under survey, and he owned 21 town lots. He now bought another 11,000 acres the next year for his father, intending for that land to be an inheritance both for his own children and his nieces and nephews. Since 1840, he tripled the land he owned. In June of 1845, he was on his way home with many of his documents when the boat he was in capsized. Sam barely escaped with his life and lost all of his papers. When Texas was annexed in the United States, Maverick was elected to the Texas legislature and served in the 4th through the ninth sessions from 1851 to 1863. He was known for working to ensure equal opportunities for his Tejano and German constituents, for fostering fair and liberal laws for land acquisition and ownership, I wonder where he got that one from, for developing transportation and other infrastructure improvements, and for ensuring a fair and efficient judicial system. He supported Sam Houston in his calls for Texas to support the Union, and argued against secession as the Civil War approached. Still, when the time came, he voted for secession and threw his support in for the Confederacy. Shortly afterward, he was appointed one of three secession commissioners by the Texas Secession Convention. These three men negotiated the peaceful surrender of federal troops in Texas under General David E. Twiggs and transferred federal stores to the state government. Maverick was re-elected mayor of San Antonio in 1862 and 1863, again as well as being elected chief justice of Bear County. After the Civil War, he was given a presidential pardon and was active in attempting to combat the radical Republican activities during Reconstruction, notably helping John H. Reagan reorganize the Democratic Party. He died on September 2, 1870, and was buried at San Antonio City Cemetery No. 1. At the time of his death, Samuel Augustus Maverick, who had always been a land investor, 
owned more than 300,000 acres of land, and was one of the two biggest land investors in West Texas. Now, despite his active life and his prosperity, in the grand scheme of things, he'd probably just go down in history with little real distinction. He was a modest hero of the Texas Revolution, of the Republic, and of early statehood, and he certainly was an interesting guy, but none of this explains how his name ends up being in the dictionary. So exactly how did Maverick become synonymous with someone who goes their own way? How did his name eventually become the nickname of a Dallas professional basketball franchise? It has its origins in the fact that Sam Maverick was notorious for not branding his cattle. According to Sam himself, it's because he didn't want to inflict pain on the animals. Other ranchers suspected it was so he could lay claim to any unbranded cattle that he came across. His wife and son likely had more insight and were more honest as to why he didn't brand the animals. George Maverick, one of his sons, stated that the elder Maverick received 400 head of cattle as payment for a $1,200 debt by one of his neighbors. Now, both this week and last week's episodes, we haven't mentioned once where Sam was a prominent rancher or a cattleman. He was very interested in real estate, but actually had very little interest in livestock. And if you remember from episode one, he wasn't even much interested in agricultural life at all, having given up a plantation early in his life. In fact, other than a few horses, he never owned any other livestock. So it's not a surprise he didn't manage these animals himself, but left them in the care of a family of slaves. This family helped him move the animals from the Gulf Coast to the Conquista Ranch on the San Antonio River. The family branded about a third of the animals, but apparently didn't bother with the rest. The cattle were allowed to wander freely otherwise. In fact, the care was so lax that the herd neither grew nor shrunk significantly and remained around 400 head. Other ranchers in the area followed the range convention of the time, and they burned their own brands onto the ones that strayed away from the herd, though they knew they very likely were Maverick's cattle. In fact, it became accepted that any unbranded cow, of which there were a whole lot of them in Texas, belonged to Maverick's herd, and any such animal actually came to be called a Maverick. The term eventually expanded from cattle that were unclaimed and wandered away from their herd to individuals who had a stubborn, independent streak. And that's how the term Maverick became a everyday part of the English language and of sports. And of Top Gun. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, there you go. Forgot about that one. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. Maverick. He's a real Maverick. And then, of course, the great TV show. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, that's, but that's the thing. It's, it is, it's such a distinctive name, and, and I'm not sure what the actual etymology between, behind the name is. I'm sure we could probably look it up, and, you know, that yeah, level but, of research would probably be appropriate for this show. But. But, but we know that Samuel Maverick was not named for uh, Tom Cruise's character in Top Gun. Like, no, that many, be sure like many, like many children since then. Yeah. Um, you know, so I, I think the argument can be made that he's definitely the origin of this, of the name, you know, oh, and yeah. its use. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, it's a... Yeah. Well, let's just talk about the man Maverick for a minute here, because, uh, you know, last week we talked a little bit about what brought him to Texas and sort of his first run at it, but it's very interesting to me this uh, second half of his of his life of, okay, he's now come back and he became such a part of the legislative and the spirit of early San Antonio in Texas and clearly was a 
highly and well-respected member of his community. Yeah, no, he was. And then he was, yeah, his, his, you know, the people of San Antonio deeply respected. They elected him mayor and they elected him their representative several times. Um, again, he just finds his way into, into these obscure situations where he's like smack dab in the middle of history. And so the, you know, the second invasion of, uh, of Texas by General Wool, or he gets taken back to Mexico. Before that, he's at the Council House fight, uh, and his and his property gets burned uh, by the Indians in the Great Raid by the Comanche and the Kiowa in the Great Raid to the Sea. Um, it's like he's he is sort of a Forrest Gump type character in that he's just sort of always there. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, you know, to be fair, there is a Maverick County, by the way. Yeah, well, it's named after him. Well, I know, but I'm just saying, like, it wasn't like, yeah, nobody ever heard from him again. It was just a thing of, you know, no, there's stuff I think, that's attributed. I to think him, it's but. interesting. It is, it is fascinating that that despite all of his 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 life and his adventures in Texas, um, you know, there's not any. Uh, there may not be. There may be some historical markers, certainly, and there may be a statue or well, somewhere, but he's he's most known because of an odd quirk of the way his the way his uh, estate handled their cattle, <laughs> you know, they didn't brand them, and it just f- filtered its way into cowboy parlance of the of the mid nineteenth century. You know, that's that's very interesting. Yeah, to well, me. there's and you know what, there's somebody out there, and they're like, "Hey, look, it's the Star Wars kid." He's like, "My name's Derek, and I have a law degree." <laughs> <laughs> well, so here's the interesting thing as well. There was another maverick in Texas. Uh, his grandson, Maury Maverick, there's actually Maury Maverick and then Maury Maverick's son, uh, Maury Maverick Jr., um, who is a lawyer and a politician. But Maury Maverick Sr. was a U.S. congressman from Texas, and he served in the in the Congress in 1930s, 1935 to 39. He is best remembered for coining the term gobbledygook. Um, <laughs> to describe obscure and euphemistic bureaucratic language uh, in a speech that he made. So uh, <laughs> so there you go. So he's still, it's another, another maverick uh, who actually was noted for his independence from the Democratic Party um, and who uh, helped get Lyndon Johnson started in politics, invented another word that's in the, that's, that's part of the dictionary now. So there you go. What a bunch of gobbledygook. Yeah, what a bunch of gobbledygook. So there's a famous house in San Antonio called the Maverick Carter House, but it was actually built in um, at the turn of the 20th century. So, so yeah, so that but that may have been William. That may have been Sam Jr., uh, who was a noted businessman. And I'm sorry, um, it was built in 1892. Sorry. Right. So he he lived until 1936. Uh, lived in San Antonio, and he was uh, actually a uh, fought in the Civil War, but he was a uh, long involved in preservation efforts at the Alamo of the Alamo. So um, he helped re he helped build the Alamo the Alamo Monument, uh, which is the, I guess the cenotaph uh, in front of the Alamo, and he helped preserve and restore the Alamo in, at the turn of the century. So he also helped he also built the Maverick Bank in just off of Alamo Plaza. He's a great guy, and, you know, these are the kind of stories that we love to find about historical Texas. People who are maybe 
lesser-known characters who had a lot of importance and were well-regarded in their day. And so it's kind of neat to find out uh, a little bit more than just the guy who Maverick County's named for. <laughs> yep. That wraps things up today. You can find links and notes from today's show at brainstable.com. We'd love to hear from you, so like and share us on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast. Follow our Instagram feed at Texas Podcast. Or go to brainstable.com and leave us some feedback. You can find our show and many other great history podcasts at historypodcasters.com. And why not follow us individually, too? I'm on Twitter at Mr. Java. I'm Max Sean with two N's. And I'm Scotticus. A big happy shout-out to our good friend James Abendroth for helping us to research and write this episode. You can find him on Twitter at Blackguard Press and find his fiction work at blackguardpress.com. Now, if you love this show and you love Texas and you love Texas history... Help us out, tell your friends, and leave a review on iTunes because that really helps us out to find listeners just like you. And if you'd like to support the show financially, please visit patreon.com slash texaspodcast where you too can become a Come and Take a Texas Ranger. We hope soon to be launching texaspodcast.fm, our new site, .fm, just like your grandpa's radio. <laughs> we hope you'll join us next time and remember that even if you aren't from Texas... Texas wants you anyway. <laughs> <laughs>